is truly a wonderful thing. You know, we always, of course, when you're first called to understand who Jesus Christ is, and only the Holy Spirit can give you that, because there was a time when many of us, including me, I don't know, I heard about Jesus Christ, I couldn't care less. But it's when the Holy Spirit makes you realize who He is. But now, for us, it's always more and more special every single year because we're getting so close to the time. And so one of the things that I was thinking of this week, and I just want to make it a note here. We hear, and it's good, we hear a lot about the gospel itself. We always hear about the gospel and, and who Christ is. We hear about the New Testament and we hear about how to live the Christian life. And those things are good. But I want us to consider even more importantly why we're here to do what we're doing. What we were called to. Again, the major thrust is called to salvation and bringing others to Christ. Absolutely. But you and I are to run a race. Not a race against each other. It's sort of a race against time, but not really. Just think of this, because it's just becoming more and more clear to me as we're getting closer to whatever's going to happen, either individually or collectively as we get closer to the rapture, when our job here will be done. We are, as Paul said, to run as if we are running for a crown, for a prize, right? I think that me included, I mean, a lot of times we just run because we're told to run a course. If you're a runner or if you're in a competition, if there is no prize to be gained, if there is no goal, why train? Why run the course at all if you just feel like you're on a treadmill? And sometimes that's the more mundane life that we live. It's on a treadmill. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes that treadmill, you know how you, treadmills you can adjust the incline? <laughs> sometimes they do not decline. But you're never running for a prize on a treadmill, except the prize of when you can shut the thing off because you've done your time. I don't want us to be like that as Christians. And I don't want to be like that as Christians. We have a goal. And the only way we can really effectively win that crown is to know the words that serve as a foundation of that track that we're running. We hear a lot about the Christian life, but I don't think we hear much about, and we should, and hopefully we will more as time goes on, the judgments. You know that we're saved, right? So we're not, there's, one, there's actually two judgments, one of which we will thankfully not have to go to. But there will be another one that every single Christian will stand before the Lord, and it's called the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ and actually it's a judgment of your reward so when you do run that race when we're all there with him in the rapture while all this hell is breaking loose down here we will have the marriage supper of the lamb and I love lamb so I might order who knows what the angels will be serving us but the point is this we will account and make no mistake about it we will each account not for our sins but like the parable of the talents and it's going to be based on faith think of this Okay, and I want to encourage you with this. If you look at the judgment seat of Christ, what it's actually about is not what, how much you have done. It's not how much you have done. It's what you have done with what you have been given. And God, in that instance, a judgment necessitates being fair. Remember, we, we discussed what fairness is. The world has got the term fairness wrong. They think fairness is equal distribution of something, whether you earned it or not. No. Fairness is getting what you deserve. That's why I maintain, and I know we all maintain, knowing that definition that I don't want God to be fair with me because I wouldn't be able to be stand here and talking about his word in the, in the assurance of salvation. I wouldn't, ha I wouldn't be able to do that. Neither would you. So in that fairness, though, we will be judged for how we perform with what we have been given. And I'm cautioning all of us. This is serious business. Just because we're saved does not mean we really should languish in the things that prevent us from moving forward. 
You know, we give ourselves a lot of leeway, and hear me right on this. There is forgiveness of sins, and there is forgiveness of not doing something because... So let's say, for instance, God brings you to someone and you shy away from doing whatever it is to call them. And I've done these things too. My point is this. Every missed opportunity is really, at the end of the day, a lack of obedience. It really is. Because God never will send any of us to do anything that he does not equip us for. But the thing is, is if we don't see the sword in front of us to pick up in the shield, we may fret going into battle. Do not let your personal pet peeves do not let your personal depression, do not let your personal biases, do not let any of that, I can't say do not because it's impossible, but if we continue to not change and allow our personal pet peeves to keep us from the things we know we need to do, you may not feel it here, but you will, and I will feel it at the Bema Seat of Christ. Don't go along to get along. If there is something that you need to do, do it. If there's a heresy you need to fix with somebody or there's a problem, you need to address it. And if they refuse to hear, then like the precedent that's set in Scripture is you wipe the dust off your sandals and you move along. There's nothing you can do about it. But when you have the opportunity to talk to somebody, to either applaud them or to tell them there's a better way or there's a different way or this needs to be done or that needs to be done and so forth. You know what I'm saying. Whatever it is for you and whomever you deal with, do not be afraid of man. But consider you are running for that crown, and I am running for that crown, and we will be judged on the opportunities we have. And there are no coincidences in God's economy. Right? That's why I stand up here, and I boldly tell you, and back by, by facts as much as I can, and I also tell you when I have opinions, and I hope you see that my opinions aren't just random things, that I try to understand what's going on around me, and in this book, and science and mathematics as much as my little brain can allow, and history for sure, and mythology... Some things that people will not touch, like DNA modification, things that we know have happened because they've seen taboo. We're going to talk more about those in a minute right now. Numbers in Scripture and the Gospel is written in the stars. And, and this is my point. Do not dismiss out of hand just because you have a natural abhorrence to it. Does that make sense? We all should have an abhorrence to, abhorrence, I'm saying that right, um, to astrology. And many of us, because it's so pervasive in this world, have been either involved in it, dabbled in it, or you read the paper, you get your horoscope, right? Yes. Oh, I'm a Taurus. Today is going to be a good... Or a fortune cookie. Or you look at your uh, placemat in the Chinese restaurant. Well, none of us really believe that. But it's funny because we will accept people talking in those terms much more quickly than we will accept when Scripture shows God's mind is a mind of order. It's a mind of mathematics. Numbers and not numerology are real. So I want you to understand that we need to get rid of our predisposition to these bad things when we apply the good side of it to Scripture because that's the best way for Satan to keep you away from the truth is by taking the truth, talking it into a lie, and then you have a natural, well, I don't want to see this in Scripture because, like when I've talked to you about giants and I've talked to you about DNA modification, that Satan was involved in that, and I even showed you in Scripture where Daniel himself says that they, they will mingle their seed with the seed of men. That's undeniable. That's not a mistranslation. But I know people have problems with that. In Genesis 6, when it says, Benaiha Elohim saw that the daughters of men were fair and they chose all of whom they wanted as wives. People came up with fairy tales, and I will tell you they're fairy tales because the church fathers from the apostles forward did not believe anything but the truth. 
This sons of Seth and whatever people come up with are all fairy tales that came that many, many hundreds of years later. Because people don't want to believe. But yet we'll believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. But we can't believe that other things that can be miracles can be done by anybody but God. When God himself in scripture says that Satan is going to do these miracles. And that's going to be the problem for many who believe they're Christian at the time of the rapture and afterward. Because there may be some time, there may be a few years or so at least, maybe who knows, between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. They're not linked together in time. They're not. And I've said this, and I want you to really have your heart set on the fact that, and mourn for this, there are going to be people coming to this church and other churches. But I say this church because we love this church. We know this church. We know some of the people here that will probably be coming here the Sunday after the rapture looking for an answer. Because they think they're Christian now. See what I'm saying? This is serious business. And they only believe what they want to believe, and they believe they're Christian. And, and that's my point. That's the whole point of this class. That's the whole point of my talking to you in the way I do. Because I had to find out some things the hard way. And I want to share them with you because we're getting so close. Okay? So that's my heart. Run for that prize now while you still have legs to run. And don't stop. And don't be a respectful person. Don't be a respecter of, of fairy tales and, and just, just know that you need to know the facts as much as you can. And then do what God calls you to do with what he's given you to do. I, I, and I say you, you know I mean me. I'm only talking from my heart because I've experienced these things, folks. And I get, believe me, it's not, it's not easy a lot of times. You know what it's like. But easy is not what we're here for. If you ever run a race, and believe me, I don't run many races, but I do run. And I hit the wall a lot sooner than somebody who's trained does. But I'm more of a mind where I'll stop before I push myself too hard. And I'm trying to change that. And that's tough. But we have to have that attitude in Christianity too. No more just living a normal life being Christian. We must be Christian first and live the life in the Christian mode. Even sometimes it doesn't feel normal. See what I'm saying? No more self-pity. No more woes me. I don't do this well enough. I know. I know it's no fun. It's not supposed to be fun because those things can be fun. It's very comforting to sit back and say, well, I'm not going to do anything now because this didn't work out right or my mother, my brother, my sister, my husband won't listen to the gospel or, or in life. I will not witness anymore because I've been rebuffed or I don't know enough about scripture to say anything to anybody. Well, then know it. Learn it. Do it. Let's not be treating each other like little children. My job is to admonish you to learn, and you're doing it. You're here, and I applaud you. But this is what we need to be doing from pastors on down and throughout. We should be ready for meat. Meat. Don't just go to Pablum because there are wolves, and how much have we been warned in Scripture about the wolves that are coming in, giving false doctrine, and I keep mentioning some of them to you here, blatant false doctrine that... Some people use in their Bible studies around the world. Especially the United States seems to be worse. At least other people in other countries, if they're not Christian, they'll tell you, I'm not Christian. But we have a lot of fake Christianity going on here, and it's getting worse. Let me give you one last fairy tale. One last fairy tale that's neither here nor there, but I want you to think about this. Because there are so many people, before we talk about numbers here, there are so many people who, because they've had problems with alcohol, and remember what it says in Scripture, Something may not be sin in general, but if it's sin to you or me because we have a problem with it, or because if, it, if we have a problem with it, then it's sin for us, as we're trying to say, right? Well, that includes wine, beer, sangria. <laughs> it includes gin. It includes vodka. 
But if I'm not an alcoholic, does that mean I can't have any of those things? No, it doesn't. But there are plenty of people who will see me maybe having a drink and will automatically think that my testimony has been messed up. Well, if I purposely do that in front of somebody who has a problem with that, then yes, my testimony is wrong. But just as meat offered unto idols, if I go to a restaurant and I order a beer, I can't be worried about what Christian might walk in and see me and trounce on my ability to have the freedom that I'm allowed because that Christian's immature, looking for a problem, right? You've offended me because you're having a beer. Well, go sit somewhere else and don't look at somebody who's drinking water. Don't look at me. You see the problem with that? So here's another fairy tale which you all probably have heard because I've heard it in the past that Christians cannot drink wine. And you talk about, well, Jesus' first miracle, his very first miracle, what was it? Oh, but no, but it wasn't wine. That's what people will say. It was not fermented. It was some mathematical or or chemical formula that it wasn't really wine. But look at the... Huh? What? There's no indication. Of course. Not only that, there's no indication that it wasn't wine. Absolutely true. But think of this. There was actual indication it was wine. Because what they said to Jesus was, but not only did they run out, yeah, because that's really wine, right? That's right. Did you hear what she said? That's right. Grape juice does not fit that thing. Let me tell you. You usually get the best wine up front, so when they get drunk, then you give them the garbage because it's cheaper, so you can dish it out by the ladleful. But if alcohol and the ability to get drunk wasn't in that liquid, none of that would apply. Jesus also said at that Last Supper, what did he say? I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. You have to understand what wine means. It's a very social thing. And when it's good wine, it's delicious. It's relaxing. Don't get drunk, but you can have wine and it will relax you. Grape juice does not relax me. I'm warning you, just warning you, let the fairy tales go, please. Don't seek to offend, but don't be so chicken to be around people just because you don't want them to feel bad about you. See, that's the problem. I don't want to offend because I'm somebody special or I'm a Christian and I have to walk and be... No, no. You and I are more concerned about being thought of poorly. God is not a respecter of persons and we shouldn't be a respecter of persons either other than the fact that we should love one another and loving one another isn't just playing nice, nice all the time, God smiling. Concerned about our attitude. That's right. It's not just attitude. That's right. That's another fairy tale. That's another good one. So as we go into this numbers, okay, we started last week. I want you to get rid of your prejudices if you have them. You could think we're talking about wine, anything, anything at all. Meat offered unto idols. For me, when I was a legalist, it was pork. If I saw you eating a piece of pork, I knew you were going to hell, and I felt bad for you. Oh, the lobster, yeah, are you kidding me? I gave that stuff up because I thought that's what God wanted me to do. I was so thankful when I could have it back. But I want you to please just understand what I'm saying in all seriousness, and please take it to heart. I've had to, and it's not easy. But you're going to have to practice it to be the best Christian that you can. Now, you may say, looking at me, if you're the best Christian that you can be, that's your opinion. Okay, and I'm still growing. But I am not going to respect your opinion of me if I am doing the right thing. And you see the fruits of my life as much as you possibly can. I am not going to shrink back. I know what I teach, and I have good reason to teach what I teach because I do the study. I do the background. And look, I don't know everything. There's no, no way. But that's not going to stop me from teaching you. And then you know what? The onus becomes on you to prove. Even just reading Scripture without anything else, you have to prove it. 
And the only way you can do that is with the Holy Spirit in you. So if you already have the Holy Spirit, this stuff ain't so much as a mystery as a lot of us would like to think it is so we have an excuse not to understand it. Let me tell you, we'll answer for that. We'll answer for it. So the book of Revelation was not written by John while he was on LSD, like one Christian person told me. He was tripping, baby. Nobody in his class. And this was a long time ago. I'm just giving you samples of what I've seen. So we were talking about number in Scripture. And now that we've gotten past that point, there's a book I was reading from. It's called the, by E.W. Bullinger, Number in Scripture. And it was written in the 1800s. By the way, he wrote the book, The Witness in the Stars. God gifted this man. Plus, they had more critical thinking skills back in those days than we do today by far, right? Yeah, I know it personally, but anyway. So I was reading you some of the preface, and I'm going to read you a little bit more of it. And then I'm going to get into some number. I'm going to show you what it means. But the whole basis of this was, you don't have to turn there. But we were talking about, where is it? Yes, we were talking about Elam. Remember we were talking about the four kings? I don't want to lose focus on this. But it says here, don't turn there because we don't have time. But in Jeremiah 49, I'm going to read you what we were talking about. And it says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam. And we know Elam is the western part of Iran, and that's where the nuclear capability is, where they're generating energy. So the bow is not a defensive weapon. It's a weapon of offense. It's not a shield. It's a bow. So he's not saying, I will take the shield away from Elam. I will break the bow of Elam. And it also says further, qualifying this bow, the chief of their might. What's the most powerful weapon anybody can have? A nuclear weapon. So to me, this infers very strongly. He's taught, and it, we know the context, as I read it to you, is the latter days, right? This is talking about, I believe, today, right where we are. And we also know that it, it also gangs Damascus into this whole prophecy. And you know what's coming in Damascus very soon now. It's almost done. It's almost ready to be triggered, right? If you've been watching it. Okay. So, but he says here was something very interesting. Right after he says, I will break the bow of Elam and the chief of their might, it says here in verse 36 of Jeremiah 49, and upon Elam, now listen to this, this is part of this judgment, how he's going to do this. And upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them toward all those winds, and there shall be no nation whither the outcasts of Elam shall come. What he's basically saying here is, when this gets smashed, they're going to scatter. But there are how many points on the compass? Four. And he's talking about four winds. And there are other prominent places in Scripture which we're going to get to where four is a very prominent number. Now, by far, four is not the only prominent number. There's a lot of them. But I want to show you in prophecy how God is so precise that when he uses numbers, they really detail some information that we can really find out. What does he mean by he's going to scatter them? He's going to bring the four winds and he's going to divide them from the four quarters of heaven. It's interesting. What is he talking about? Well, we're going to find out. But remember, everything has to be in context. We do know, as we're trying to decode this language, that it is talking about the judgment on the southwestern portion, at least, of Iran, because we know now the migration of the king of Elam from the Abrahamic days. We also know he's going to break the bow of his might, the chief of his weapons. That may have happened in type. You see how these concentric rings of prophecy keep getting bigger and bigger and closer and closer to the real fulfillment, the prophecies itself don't change. But the way they're fulfilled get more and more accurate, if you will, or bigger as they come to the end. That's what I'm saying. Okay? Like you, can, you can tell that in the prophecies of Jesus Christ, right? From Joseph, who was a type of Christ. And, and matter of fact, Rachel and I were talking about it uh, yesterday. Adam and Eve are a type of Jesus Christ in the church. Custom-made 
help meet for him out of his own flesh. Think of that. You never get to the depth of Scripture. All right. So let's resume at that point. Now, here's still part of the preface in the numbers in Scripture. I'm going to read this to you. This is E.W. Bullinger in the preface to his book about numbers. In all the works of God, we find not only what we call law. You agree that everything's based on some kind of law. Even the law of physics, which we can't break. But those aliens seem to be able to break them. You notice that? Because they're demons and they're not bound by the physical laws of the physical universe. But we are. Satan used to not even be bound by time. Now we know he's bound by time. And he's going to get angrier because he knows his time is, well, for anybody who's not bound by time, your time's never short. But when you're bound by time, you cease to be anywhere near omnipotent or omnipresent. Not that he ever was, but he at least had a, some view of the timeline that was less as pervasive as God or complete as God's, but he had something because he was with God. He was his right-hand man, right? We not only call the law and the lawmaker, but we observe And here's the key, God himself is a law enforcer. We know that Jesus Christ holds everything together in this physical universe, right? And if he didn't hold it together in a moment, we'd be plasma, everything would be gone, correct? So the laws of physics have to be enforced. And they're pretty well enforced. No one breaks the laws of physics. At least any beings created within this physical dispensation of the stuff of of this physical universe, like human beings and animals and so forth. So it says here, we speak of laws, but they are nothing in themselves. We know that for sure. There was a time I didn't know that. I know it now. They have no being. They possess no power. They cannot make themselves nor carry themselves out. What we mean when we speak of the law in nature is simply this. Very simply this. And here's the simply this. God in action. Law cannot be affected until there's an action that enforces the law. Will you agree? God not merely giving or making laws, but carrying them out and enforcing them. As he is perfect, so his works and his words, that Bible, right, the logos, his words also must be perfect. And when we see number used, and here's the key, not by chance, but by design, and I just showed you in scripture, how many times did he say the number four? You say that was by design, right? You mean that's not by accident. It's not a mistranslation. And there's so many other places where number is by design. But the living God working and speaking through precision when he uses number in Scripture. In this first part of our subject, we are to speak only of design in the use of number. And then the second part, we'll speak to significance. So his book is really in two sections. We're not going to obviously study the book. But let's talk about the number four. Does anybody have any questions about where he's going with this and what we're trying to, to understand here? We know that number appears in Scripture, and we know that it appears for certain reasons. So let's talk about this. Before I go to the number four, let me ask you about the number seven. A lot of you know what that means. Completeness. How many days are in a week? And God created everything in, well, six days. And if you look at how this whole timeline, we've discussed this here before, I want you to start thinking in these more eternal terms. We know that with God, a thousand years is as a, and a day is as a. So we know that from the time Adam was created, which if you look at the way the stars and everything move in precision, mathematical precision, you can use software to go back and find out. I covered this in volume one of my notes when we were studying Genesis. 
it very strongly seems that Adam was created in what would be the equivalent in our calendar of 4004 BC. And wouldn't you know it, the Jews also believed that for many centuries. So they knew something. They tracked something without software. But let's say we know pretty much that the earth started at a certain point because we do know that scripture took about 1,500 years to be written. And we know that certain books were written at certain times. So we can calculate when most probably the earth was created. There is a whole time span of 6,000 years from the creation of Adam till when? Till the end of the church age. Okay? That's the 6,000 years. In that 6,000 years, do we have anything like the millennium where there'll be perfection under perfect rule? Do we? Anybody? Anybody? That's right. Speak up, huh? That's my point. Six days you shall labor and labor hard. Remember when Adam sinned and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden and the curse for Adam was, is, oh, you'll still be able to eat. You'll still be able to get your sustenance, but it's not going to be easy. And women, you'll still be able to do what you're supposed to do is populate the earth and replenish it, but it's not going to be very sweet. Okay? And how many times do we see in Scripture where these times of travail are equated to a woman in her travail? Right? 6,000 years shall the earth labor in pain while we wait for that 7,000 year, which is the, which will be the healing of the world, the healing of the nations. Israel will be the head of the nations under her king, which they wanted him to come as a king the first time and he disappointed them, right? Do you see the seven design here now? We have a week of days, thou shalt labor, for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. So he said, you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Did you know that there was no command to worship God any differently on the Sabbath? Look it up. It does not say to worship Him in any different way. Even for the old Israel law days, it didn't say that. It just said to remember the Sabbath, to separate it, to keep it holy. And holy only means in that context, set apart. Well, the millennium will not really be any different than now because we know a new heaven and a new earth are coming, right? But when is that going to happen? After the millennium. But the earth as it sits now will be renewed to the point of being re-beautified, regentrified. But it's not going to be destroyed yet. It is after the millennium that other judgment I talked to you about before, which is called the great white throne judgment. You can look that up in the book of Revelation, where all who have not accepted Jesus Christ will be going to the place... After the judge, which is fair, everyone will be found guilty. Then they will go to hell. And finally, Satan will be locked up for good with the beast and the false prophet. And all of them will have their fun. The demons and everybody, they'll all rule in hell together. I think it's the book of Isaiah where it says, and Hades will rise to greet you when you come. That's how powerful it's going to be in hell. But we won't have to worry about that. So the number seven, we have a week of days and a day of rest, which is a model for the operation. Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the Sabbath. Man was not created for the Sabbath. And isn't he our Sabbath rest? Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you. And the seventh day is, and the millennium is. So you now can talk to somebody who says, I don't believe in the millennium. I'm a pre-this, most that. No, everybody's allowed to have their own opinion. Do not let them think that their opinion is always right. 
Now, you don't have to be forceful about it, but sometimes you can get into a discussion with a Christian and actually state your case without, oh, I can't offend anybody because they're allowed to believe whatever they want. As long as they believe in Jesus Christ, they're fine. No, you're saved. You're saved, but you need to know and I need to know some facts about how God thinks and how he operates to move forward and in that race for a crown. If all I need is Jesus Christ to be saved, and that's true, if that's all I need and I don't have to do anything else, then why do I have to run so hard? Why? It's easy, isn't it? That's my point. You do have to be armed because someone may be at the point like I was when I believed in the law, I would have been that person who would have given you all the reasons under the sun and all the reasons I could find in Scripture. But I was wrong. I was not right. Was I saved? Well, if I had Jesus Christ, and there are people who believe in the law who don't have Jesus Christ. There are people who come to this church and other churches who say they're Christian and have no clue about Scripture. Does it mean they're saved? Well, that's not for us to judge. But if they come in here with fairy tales and heresies, you see, the modern day thing, okay, so we're not going to have much time again now. <laughs> Sorry, but this is important, right? The modern day thing, and this is what we have to be careful of, are people who call themselves Christians and Christian leaders now are giving us fairy tales. Like I told you, it's not just not believing in the millennium. That's kind of benign. But you can see, we can prove. We can prove that there's a, there has to be. Otherwise, God's not going to be able to fulfill what he's going to fulfill. Because it says so. Because we know how it works. But there were worse people who say that, like I told you, a very powerful Christian leader throughout this nation, and now getting throughout the world, who's bringing these religions together, Islam and Catholicism and wonderful. But he's the one who tells us in his book that you shouldn't know any prophecy. Jesus actually said you're not supposed to know this. I've told you that. It was none of your business. It's none of your business. Really? Now, can you argue with that man? You can, but I mean, would you be allowed to? You'd be swept away. You'd be pushed aside. So you can't. So you wipe this dust off the sandals of your feet and let him do because he's being used by Satan. But there are plenty of Christians who follow him. Because he can take scripture and take people who do not know how scripture works and in their fairy tales and say, well, even though these fairy tales are benign, it makes them targets for people like that. He's got a lot of arguments. He's got a lot of arguments that we can find common ground with Islam. Listen to this man. You know who I'm talking about. He's doing this, folks. And Christians are oblivious to it because he quotes scripture. Kumbaya, my Lord. Everybody, as long as you get along and smile and have clean windows and all, it's fine. That's right. That's right. Good luck. Yeah, right. It's all good to actually take that leap. Amen. We've got about five minutes. I hope that was a good introduction, not only for the seriousness of studying these things that we may feel are taboo. You have to let go of it, but you have to do it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, like I had to, okay? But that doesn't mean that you have to let go of some things to learn the truth. It's harder to unlearn something than to learn something new. Anybody ever hear that before? That's right. So that's what I'm trying to prime you here. I know it's taking a little while, and I apologize, but I'm trying to get to my point. You know how long it takes me to get to a point. But it's all good. So we're going to go now in this book to the number four as an example. So he starts out the number four by saying, we have seen that three, the number three, signifies divine perfection. Give me an example, a prime example, the prime example. The Trinity. The Trinity. Amen. Okay. So he says here, now the number four is made up of three and one. Well, that's pretty good. 
and denotes therefore and marks that which follows the revelation of God, namely his creative works. See, God reveals himself as three persons. Can we detect that without him revealing that? No. We don't even know how it works. We have to take that on faith. So we have to take perfection on faith because we don't see a lot of it anyway. Right? He is therefore known by the things that are seen. Isn't that true? Matter of fact, in the book of Romans, it says they're without excuse because they have seen his creation. Okay. Hence, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say that, but I'm paraphrasing that. Hence, the written revelation commences with the words, in the beginning God created. Creation is therefore the next thing, the fourth thing, and the number four always has reference to that which is created. It is emphatically the number of creation. Now, just remember that. We're going to have samples of this. And man in his relationship to the world as created by God. So you see how tightly we're integrated to the things we're part of the creation in the physical form. It is emphatically the number of creation. Okay, let's see. While six is the number of man, now listen to this, in opposition to and in, in independence of God, what's the mark of the beast? It's three sixes. Very simple, folks. There's no mathematics here, really. It's three sixes. Marking a false perfection. 777 is really, if you want to think about it, it's like if you play the slots, you may say, oh, I, I win. <laughs> Isn't like 4-7? I don't play the slots. But anyway. It, all 666, and you can see this in my book of Revelation study, all 666 means is that it's an unholy trinity based on humanness. Satan is dealing with the physical to put his physical king as the king of the world because the first physical king, Adam, failed. The Antichrist is going to be not only a physical human being, but is probably going to have some of this angelic machinations in him to fake the true Christ, which does also have both, doesn't he? He has physical DNA and he also has God DNA. Well, the Antichrist will have physical DNA and also some other God type or spiritual type DNA. You see the counterfeit here? Does this make sense? That's all it's about. This is number four now, again. Number four, it is the number of things that have a beginning. So there's nothing in eternity that has a beginning. Do we agree? So it is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made, because nothing can be made unless it has a beginning, of material things, things of this physical universe, and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Would you say that human beings are made complete? And the pinnacle is we are made as complete, as functioning. You know, Adam was created, but he wasn't complete until what? God breathed the breath of life. And then he became a living soul, which then he was a complete human being. Would you agree? And then he was able to have a relationship with God because he was a human being. Complete means that you are in the image of your creator and to build to have a relationship with him. A dead man can have no relationship with God. Okay. That means human, other than human beings can have no real relationship with God in the way that humans can. Hence, it is the world number. The world number. World number. And especially the city number. Now, the fourth day saw the material creation finished. And on the fifth and sixth days, he was finishing uh, and peopling the earth. So the fourth day is the material creation was finished. The sun and the moon and the stars were completed, and they were to give light upon the earth which had been created and to rule over the day and night. Okay, we're going to wrap up with just two more points here. So we know that number four is creation. The fourth day, physical creation was done, and it was readied for life. 
for actual the next step for other life. Four is the number of the great elements of this earth. Earth, air, fire, and water. Four are the regions of the earth, north, south, east, and west. See how physical we are here? You see this? Four are the divisions of the day. Morning, noon, evening, and midnight. Or in our Lord's words, when he speaks of his coming at evening, midnight, the cock crowing, or in the morning, in the book of Mark. We are never to put off his coming in our minds beyond tomorrow morning. Remember I talked to you about, which he says, he sees back in the 1800s, right? So it's nothing new. The imminency of Christ. For each of us individually, because we may die at any moment. I know you're still waiting for me to have that heart attack. I hope you have to keep waiting. But... For any of us, it could be by tomorrow morning, by the time the cock crows, we could see Jesus Christ. Or it could be whenever the rapture is ready to happen. Four seasons of the year, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. And finally, there are four great lunar phases. So we can go further, but I think it's probably time to stop. Next week, we're going to pick up the fourfold division of mankind. 